And I appreciate the invitation to be here and the, uh, uh, the spirit of fellowship and worship that um, has already been made evident this morning. Furthermore, I heartily endorse the preaching that's already gone before and uh, hope that that same spirit will uh, bless me as I stand before you to speak. I'd like to uh, ask you to turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. One of the things that is one of the great blessings in my life is to have been brought by God's providence to the Primitive Baptist Church. I recognize the uh, I recognize the experience that Brother David was speaking of this morning of um, being brought to repentance and of seeing seeing my sins and finding finding peace in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Manasseh didn't lack for religion all through his life. He had plenty of it. It was just all godless and evil. And not for his father's fault either. That's just the path he chose because of what he was at that time. But, as the brother said, uh, thank the Lord for grace that literally invades our rebellious life and brings us to humble submission at the foot of Jesus. In John chapter 12, down about verse 20, we find some Greeks. I don't believe they were Gentile Greeks. I believe they were Jewish Greeks, that is, Greeks that lived in the Jewish world and not in Judea or Galilee. But this is the week of, of the Passover. You know, on the day of Pentecost, we're told that there were devout men from every nation under heaven that were gathered together at Jerusalem. It was 40 days after, after, um, after Passover. And, I'm sorry, 50 days after Passover. At any rate... For Passover, it was the same way. There were devout men from every nation under heaven that were gathered together there. The place was full. All the hotels were full. The campgrounds were full. Airbnb places, they were full. The place was just overflowing with devout Jews who had come up to worship and to observe the Passover. And out of that whole multitude of people into which Jesus had had come just a few days before, riding upon an ass, a colt, the foal of an ass, into Jerusalem with people shouting Hosanna and praises to God and going into the temple to hear Him teach and to preach. We find these Greek Jews, devout men, who come to search out Jesus. I love this picture because with all of the thousands and thousands of devout Jews that are just seeking to perform a ritual, 
there are some in that crowd that are seeking something more. And the manner in which they seek what they're seeking is really quite interesting because these men come to Philip and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. I hope, I hope this every time the Lord's people gather together that they haven't come together just to observe a ritual of coming together. Rather, they've come together because there's a hunger in their heart and in their life that finds its expression in these very words. We would see Jesus. I mean, what do you want to see this morning? Brother Dave's a young man. I'm an old man. Brother Sam told me I was old. So I take his word for it. But at any rate, if you come to see pretty faces and nice clothes and so forth, then, you know, God bless you if that's the level you're on. But, but I suspect if you're here on Saturday morning, when there are so many other things for people to do, and so many other things that people are involved in doing, that you've come here because you're looking for something more. Just like these men, you're already devout. I have no question in my mind about me standing before a group, a congregation of devout believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for all of that, you still come with the expectation and hope in your heart that once again, you'll get to see something, some little bit more of Jesus. Lord, make it so. You know, reveal yourself to us once again. These men came to Philip and they said, we would see Jesus. Tells us a lot about these men. Just a few words. You know, the Lord doesn't need a lot in order for us to get a message if we'll just sit there and meditate on a little while. If someone comes and comes to you and says, I would see Jesus, that implies some things. First of all, that they have some desire in their heart to actually behold something that they're not currently able to see. Where they were back there in the Greek world, wherever it was, they, they couldn't see Jesus. What they could do, evidently, is they could hear about Him. You and I, we can tell people about Jesus. Preachers, they preach the gospel because they're they're proclaiming and they're publishing the truth and the, and, the, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's words in our ears that hopefully sink down into our heart and bring forth this, this declaration. We would see Jesus. There's something there. There's a hunger. They must have, in what they heard, understood that Things are being said about this man that lead us to believe that he is exactly what our whole people for hundreds of years have been told to look for. They don't know for sure. I believe that. They don't know for sure, but they would put Jesus to the test. Remember, the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon's kingdom, to Jerusalem, to test him. She'd heard the renown of his wisdom and his kingdom and the, 
the manner in which his servants served and the whole glory of, 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 of Israel at that time had come to her. And so she came to him to try him and to, and to test, it, test that wisdom. And when it was all done and she went back, the answer was the half wasn't told. If you come a hundred more times to this church and hear Brother Charles preach in the fullness of, of all the power of his calling, by the time it's all over, when you leave this world and when you come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing you'll be able to say is, I heard it. I heard it every Sunday. I read about it every day. I listened to this preacher and that preacher. I, I, was, I tried to fill my life with it. But the half was never told. These men came because they, they hungered. They had a little bit of knowledge, desired to see if what they had heard was true, and came to Philip. said, sir, we would see Jesus. I love the fact they came to Philip. It's just a little something strange. I, I, I'm always impressed with reading about these ironic things that happen in, in the way that Jesus deals with people and the way that the Lord deals with people. If you turn back to the first chapter of John's Gospel, you find the, the story of Philip's calling. Philip was a man of Bethsaida. This is in verse 43. Where we have recorded for us that the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find it Philip. Sounds like he was homing in on one person out of all of those who were in Galilee. Talk about particular activity on the part of Jesus. Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is what Philip tells his friend Nathaniel. You know what it tells us? It tells us that this man, I don't know what he did for a living, uh, Peter, and, Peter and Andrew, we know they were fishermen, and James and John, they were fishermen, and he was friends with them or knew them anyway. But he came to Nathaniel and he said, we found him. You know, the one that Moses said we were supposed to look for? We found him. We aren't told one thing about what Jesus said to Philip other than come follow me. We aren't told how much time Philip had spent pouring over what he had been taught about the scriptures and about the prophet that should come. The one who would deliver Israel from all of his enemies. We know this much. Once Philip found the answer and he obviously had found it because he says we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He went immediately and told his friend the good news. Amen. He was looking for it. He was yearning for it. And when the knowledge of it came in the person of Jesus Christ, Philip was not one of those that had to, said, had to say, I, I need to go find this one. He's out there somewhere and I just need to go find him. No, he came to Philip. And Philip went immediately to Nathaniel, told him we found him of whom Moses wrote, 
in the law, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And, and most people probably know the response of Nathaniel, the cynic. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, this, this is the typical response many people give. You, you, you try to tell them about God's sovereign grace, about his mercy, about his compassion, about his, the, 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 the power of his grace in, in quickening and converting sinner from rebellion to, to, to being submissive to Jesus. You tell them all these things. There's nothing that you have to do to get born again because it's all from above. It's all by the power of God. And they look at you and say, well, that sounds good, but it's just too good to be true. <laughs> but it is true. Amen. We fight the forces of cynicism because people have grown cynical because of erroneous doctrine that is thrown out in the name of Jesus Christ. It hasn't satisfied. It hasn't given them the light they look for. It hasn't given them the hope that their soul longs for. And because of that, they don't want to be hurt anymore. And so when you bring them the truth, their immediate response is, it's too good to be true. Wish it was, but it's too good. I guess I'll just sit here in suffering and darkness and sorrow and pity for myself until I die. But that's just too good to be true. But it is true. It is true. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Why don't you come and see? Come and see. And, and I mean, I, I'm not planning to really talk about Nathaniel that much, but, man, he did see. He came before he even got to Jesus. Jesus told him that he had already seen him. Already knew him. He said, wait a minute. How do you know me? That ever happened to you in the world here? You, you know, you meet somebody on the street and say, I know you. Wait a minute. How do you know me? Rest assured, there are people out there in the world who see you and who know how you live. And they know who you're connected to. And a lot of times, if you're, if you're a member of this church, trust me, they see how you live. And they know that you're connected to this church. And how you live reflects on the name of this church, and even more so on the name of Jesus Christ, whom you profess to be a disciple of. And somebody comes up and says, I know you. How do you know me? Well, I saw you while you're sitting under the fig tree. What? And you know, Nathaniel, cynicism is a, it's a terrible thing, but it's, it's got about as much hold on somebody as a piece of wet tissue paper. We just give a lot of credibility to it until something comes along that just tears it apart. And for Nathaniel, this is the way it was. Why don't you come and see? Got close to Jesus? I know you. How do you know me? I saw you when you are sitting under the fig tree. Well, you must be the Christ. <laughs> you must be the Christ. He says, wait a minute. He says... You believe I'm the Christ because I told you I saw you sitting under the fig tree? He says, man, you're going to see some things that convince you a whole lot more than that. <laughs> and then he, then he goes the further step of convincing Nathaniel that he really, really, really does know him. Because he tells him what he was thinking about while he was sitting under the fig tree. 
you were you were meditating upon the dream of of Jacob. That's right. Jacob's dream. He says, but you're going to see the reality of that dream. Amen. You're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, it's uh, it's interesting in this that we see here. It's interesting the different names that are applied to Jesus that come out in this. First, he's referred to as the prophet who should come. Then he's referred to as the Christ. And then he calls himself the Son of Man. That's the name that he preferred to be called by in his earthly ministry, the Son of Man. The point in all this is simply that here was one, Philip, who had brought the message to someone else of come and see, which is about the easiest invitation that there is. Amen. Man, we've got the great singing. We sing a cappella. We just, we just raise the roof with our singing. What good does that do somebody who never comes and participates? Boy, the fellowship is so warm. I mean, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we love each other and, and we love getting together and we love worshiping and we love fellowshipping and we love breaking bread with each other. And what good does that do anybody if they never participate in it? Oh, and the preaching, it just lifts our souls. It just, it just brings heaven down here to earth. It, it's just so glorious and it's true and it's correct. And our, our preacher, man, he can, he can rightly divide the word of truth and apply it where it needs to be. And, and our souls are fed all the time. What good does that do if somebody never hears it? Do you have to preach to them? Are they one of those cynics? The message is here in the scriptures, brethren. It's three simple words. Come and see. I believe everybody, male and female, who's part of the church, that's the level and the extent of their evangelistic efforts here in the world. Somebody over the back fence, somebody at work, somebody at school, wherever it is, telling them the wonderful things we have, the cynical response is, well, it's just good down at my church. Or I don't care about it. I've been through church all my life and I just don't care about it anymore. Well, why don't you come and see? You come and see and judge for yourself. Well, Nathaniel, he was told to come and see. And these Greeks that came to worship at the feast, the same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, I don't know why they sought out Philip. God's providence is a marvelous and wonderful thing. But, but here are some men who want to see coming to the one who, of course, has been seen. Philip, rather than going directly to Jesus with them, he goes to Andrew. Every time I read this, I kind of wonder, why did he go to Andrew? It matters little, really. You and I are like that sometimes. We want a little encouragement from a brother or a sister. We're impressed with something. Some situation falls into our lap here, and we don't quite know what to do with it. Remember, I mean, Jesus and the disciples, 
they'd been they'd been preaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as we look at it in reality, wasn't wasn't all that successful. On the day of Pentecost, there were how many gathered together? 120? Out of all that time? At any rate, Philip takes them to Andrew and Andrew and Philip and the, and the Greeks. They go to Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. I'm not sure precisely what the what those Greek men were wanting to see in Jesus. I, I assume, I take it, they wanted to verify what they had heard, the claims that had been made, the stories that had been told. They wanted to see what all the other Jews had been seeing and to make a judgment based on that. But Jesus has a way of, I'm telling you, you come to him with one question and he never answers it. <laughs> because because he's, he's already got something far deeper, far more significant, far more needful for your soul and mind to bring before us, to confront us with. Right. Yep. It's as though these men come saying, we want to see the man, Jesus. And Jesus says... Well, why don't you hang around a little bit longer and you can see me be glorified. Now remember, Peter and, Peter and James and John had been taken by Jesus up to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. I, I mean, that's what it's referred to usually. But at any rate, they got up there and what happened? Jesus was glorified in their presence. They saw him in a way that they had never seen him before. And they had an experience that was unlike anything that they had had before. And they had responded in a completely normal and fleshly way of making up their own religion to commemorate what they had seen. And then, of course, they were immediately brought to the point of just, well, that didn't amount to anything. And then Jesus said, and I don't want you to tell anybody what you saw until I'm glorified, until I'm crucified and raised from the dead. Don't tell anybody. Jesus, this is his message for those that came to see Jesus. We would see Jesus. Stay long enough. Because the hour of my glorification has come. Here's, here's what he said. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Who does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like another preacher several many years down the road? 15th chapter, 1 Corinthians, he's writing about how what goes in the ground is not what comes out of the ground. What is sown is sown in dishonor and so forth and so on. What is raised is raised in incorruption and glorification and, 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 and it's incorruptible and so forth. Where do you get that teaching from? Not the philosophers. He got it straight from Jesus Christ himself. 
Because Jesus is that corn of wheat that falls into the ground and dies and abides alone, not, not in the... What he did was so unique that nobody else could do it. What he experienced was so unique that nobody else ever could. What he... What he... What he finished, what was brought forth at the end of it all, was so glorious that there simply is nothing else in this world that we can behold that conveys the same power of what the believers in their unbelieving way witnessed on the morning of the resurrection. He did it alone because there was nobody else who could do it, who has done it, or whoever will do what He did. God the Father, working through Jesus Christ, did a peculiar work that will never be repeated again, doesn't have to be repeated for effect over and over, because it was done once and was finished for all time. And for all of those for whom it was done. As surely as Jesus died on the cross. For an elect family of God. He rose again for the justification of that same body of people. And he will come again in his glory. To glorify them. Onto that wonderful end of our of our journey, if you want to call it that, of being able to stand before God the Father, holy and without blame, in love. And Jesus in our midst. Jesus says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. I'm hoping I'm correct. If I'm wrong, somebody please correct me. But I'm hoping that I am right in understanding that these are the words that he said unto those men who said we would see Jesus. Do you you see him as as the Son of Man who is to be offered up? And in the offering up, the dying in shame and judgment of sin, that that's how he's going to be glorified? Do you see him in such a way that you're willing? There is that within you which which you, you find yourself willing to lose your life that you've built up in this world in order to follow This man, Jesus, who says, you come follow me and you'll find your life. Well, wait a minute. I want, I want, I want the book. I want the tour guide book here. I want, I want what's what's going to tell me what it's all going to be like. No, you follow me in faith and I'll show you what it's going to be. I'm sure that anybody in this building today who's been in the way for for a while for a long time would be 
more than happy, and I, I suspect to be all the same testimony basically, that in following the Lord I had no idea when I came up out of the water of baptism that following the Lord would be what it has turned out to be this many years down the road. He doesn't tell us ahead of time. He didn't tell his original 12 disciples ahead of time. The only thing he told them ahead of time basically was this. Son of man must go up to Jerusalem and be abused by the, by the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Be crucified, die, and be raised again the third day. And they didn't even understand what it meant to be raised from the dead on the third day. But they followed him faithfully. And wherever they went, wherever he went, they went. Wherever he sent them, they went. And returned to him with reports of their faithfulness. And then we're reminded, well, this is all well and good, but rejoice in this rather than all that you've done that your name is written. Your name is written in indelible ink. In the blood of Jesus Christ, if you will. Amen. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. It's not talking about being self-destructive. You don't have to be suicidal to follow Jesus. I love my life in this world in the sense in which I know what my purpose is. I know what the joy of my living is all about. I know the people around me that I love living this life with. I thank the Lord for that. I would never have found it on my own. But I had a life. And I've still got enough of that old life in me that I hate. I hate it. I, I, I can't cut off parts of this body to get rid of it. I can't abuse this body and force it out of me. I can't go into a sauna and sweat it out because it's going to be with me till the last breath that I take. And there still will be evidence of it because when they lay my body in the grave, I mean, I know they, I know they embalm everybody and all that stuff, but, but still the, the reality is that our bodies, when we're dead, Manifest that there's still sin present there because they go corrupt and go back to the dust of this earth. But there is a life that I believe I have because of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And I do love that life. I, I do love it. And it's a life that I didn't plan on. But as he says here, he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. I don't know how it is with you. I, I, I don't know very many of you, know a few here in the congregation today. But I believe that this church wouldn't be here today if there weren't people who loved their life in Jesus, even unto death. Amen. As long as they are in this world, they remain faithful because they sense and they know and they have experienced the love of God towards them 
in the person of Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And even now, with him seated, seating, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us and feeding our souls daily through the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful life. That's not the name of some movie. You know, it's played at Christmas time. That's the nature of following the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, he said, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. I'm, I'm ready to be offered up. He says, even before that, he said, you know, I'm between a, between a rock and a hard place. He says, I'd like to go on and be with the Lord. Because that's better for me. But he says, I know that the Lord's will is that I stay here because that's better for you. Do you think Paul, having said that, spent however much time he had left in this life, despising the fact that he had to stay here with those miserable sinners that filled up the church? Brother David was talking about the church being for the good people. Just just go remind yourself by reading the Corinthian letters every now and then. You'll find out that, uh, you know, that's one church you probably wouldn't want to be a member of because they wouldn't have such a good reputation. They worked hard at getting a reputation with the world and they were corrected and instructed that the only reputation that really amounts to anything is the one you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that, what kind of a life that brings us into. You mean we have to love one another? You mean we have to actually, we actually have to set aside part of our liberties and our, our freedom in Christ in order to, in order to live with the person whose faith is weak? That although we know that meat from the butcher's shop or the shambles, whatever, that it's, that it's okay and it's nothing, that we will, we will not eat meat for as long as we live if we know it seriously offends another person. Now, I'm not talking about just fleshly, carnal offenses. I don't like the way your hair looks. I don't like how big you are. I don't like the fact to take up two seats or, you know, whatever. People are offended. I, you might as well just stop living if you don't want to offend somebody in this world about something. And even then, you stopping breathing will offend somebody else. So it's just forget it. But your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're a special case. Because Jesus died for them. Jesus died for them. Paid for their sins. He purchased their redemption. And you need to treat them like the special, the special people that they are. Amen. Whether they treat you that way or not. Amen. This, this is, this is church 101. This is what, you know, love one another. As I've loved you, love one another. The 11th commandment. Children can remember that one real easy. They don't like it, but that's how simple it all comes down to. 
He says, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it on to life eternal. If any serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. You, you devout men from the, from the Greek world, from out there beyond the borders of Judea and, and Galilee. He says, don't come wanting to see me if you're not willing to pay the cost of following me. There's, there's nothing new about the terminology, but, but there's always that thing, that conflict between cheap grace and costly grace. The world wants cheap grace. All you have to do is ask somebody if they, what do you, do you believe in grace? Oh, yeah, I believe in grace. I mean, I can do anything I want to and God forgives me for it. That's cheap grace. Costly grace is just what Jesus has been talking about. Hating this life for the life we have in this world onto eternal life and following the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the, do you see the promise in this? He says, if any man or if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. Now, it was true for the disciples, wherever Jesus went, you could find them. How about us? Where is the Lord? Well, he's seated at the right hand of of the Father. He rules and reigns over not only the world, but he reigns over this church. Is this where his servants are? Are we all seated around the, the throne of Christ? The picture we have in Revelation is... Is a powerful picture of those seats that are that just circle the throne, and the heavenly host that's there as well, and the beast, and 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 it's just it's just a picture we have of unending, ceaseless, powerful, all-consuming offering up unto God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ the praise and the worth, and the praise and the worship that they are worthy of, Amen. to the degree to which. They cast their crowns. They just they bow down in humble submission. There is the loss of themselves there in the presence of the one they serve, the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, the Lamb that taketh away the sins of the world, the Lamb that was slain and lives. Are you where He is? Time would, you know, I'd love to talk more about this, but I just want to end with one, one other verse or uh, one other verse that Jesus utters here. It's down in verse 39. When he talks about following him, being where he is, tells us exactly how he would have us to see him. Not as the man Jesus, the compassionate man who healed sicknesses, who raised the dead, not as the, the Son of Man who taught what God would have us to know, but as the one who, as we see here, and, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. 
You come to Christ. You come to one who died. You come to one who died for us. You come to one whose death makes no sense at all on the merits of his own life. You understand what I'm saying? He did no sin. There was nothing in him that justified what happened to him. And furthermore, if he had not willingly submitted himself to it and had indeed called the, what, 12 legions of angels to deliver him, where would you and I be? If all this was about was just Jesus as the individual, brethren, we're lost world without end. But how do you see Jesus? He's the sent one. He's the chosen one. He's the elect one. He's the redeeming one. He is the justifying one. He is the suffering one. He is the atoning one. He is the resurrecting one. He is the ruling and reigning and interceding one. He is literally our all in all. How do you see him? I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Jesus, reveal yourself this way. To draw your people onto yourself. That they may not only see you as the Son of Man, not only as the Son of God, but as the Savior of sinners and the King of glory. May the Lord pardon any error and bless the truth, our prayer.